Hello everybody, welcome to the show. Today is Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. I'm Adam Hoopengardner and this is Tango Uncorked. Today on the program, I'm very happy to have uh, a heck of a special guy in the New York Tango community. He is one of the friendliest, happiest people you'll see when you go out. He likes to leave his baggage at home and for that we are grateful. Does he even have baggage at home? I have no idea. Maybe he's a minimalist. But his name is Bat Johnson, and he's going to be sharing with us today some stories. Um, he's a writer. He's a broadcaster. He's a teacher. He's a consultant. He's uh, a human. And um, as I already said, he's a very fascinating guy with some really cool stories. And it's great to sit down and talk to him. It's went on a little longer than usual, but I'm not here to, you know, create a show that's within a certain amount of time. So if, if it goes, it goes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's fine. Um, this weekend is the Philadelphia Tango Festival, the ninth year, the ninth anniversary. Um, I may not have a show out next week, depending on how the weekend goes, because I'll be there from Friday until Tuesday, and I will not be bringing my equipment, so I won't have the opportunity to sit down and talk to anybody but if we split, if we take a week off, that's fine. It'll just give everybody an opportunity to catch up on all the shows that you may have missed in the past. This is episode number seven. Um, how are you all doing today? How are you? How are you? Are you well? Did you wake up today and think, wow, it's beautiful out. I'm going to have some coffee or some tea and I'm going to enjoy this day. Or did you wake up and think, oh, shit, I got to go do this and this and that. Well, hopefully it's the former, and if it's the latter, then eventually maybe you'll get through it and find something else you enjoy. I am doing laundry while I do this recording. It's the big laundry day in the household here, or in the tiny apartment, um, but it's definitely needed since I am getting ready to go away this weekend. I need some clean undies and some clean socksies. Um... Are you doing anything this weekend? Are you doing anything interesting? It's nice to have something to look forward to. Do I sound like I just woke up? Well, I might have. But you'll never know because who knows what time it is. I kind of like this time-neutral podcast format. It is whatever time it is when you decide to take a listen. So, that's what time it is. Did I just wake up at 2 a.m. when you're listening to this? Maybe. How weird. Or at 6 p.m.? Not impossible. I've done it before. A uh, few more things to report. Yes, the ninth annual. Why is it the ninth annual? Shouldn't it just be the ninth year of this thing? I don't know. Those things confuse me. We have the eighth annual Cleveland Marathon coming up in July 26, 27, 28. Um, but this weekend is the ninth annual Philadelphia Tango Festival. And it's shaping up to be a big one. I'm really proud of Meredith and Tango in general for being able to enjoy these kind of fun and interesting events. Um, so if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Send me your comments and feedback, some of which I've already been receiving. One thing somebody asked me recently was why I don't talk about Tango in the opening of the show. And uh, because I don't want to. So that's that. 
<laughs> I don't really know what to say about that. Um, it's called Tango Uncorked. We know what the show revolves around. We know where the guests come from and why I am acquainted with them or friends with them. So I think it goes without saying that we don't need to talk about it or that what we're going to be talking about shortly will have something to do with tango. Anyway, I'm very happy for this program today with Bat Johnson, so please enjoy the show. I had to turn the volume up. <laughs> That's what mic? I discovered. Yeah. We're is, just going to ease my, into it. Is my... Oh, we're going oh, to ease. Are we recording yet? We are. Okay, good. And I'm going to remind you of something you told me recently. Uh-oh. The microphone... Is in here. Is in here. <laughs> you got you to gotta talk into it real gently. You have to fit. You have to fit your voice into their ear. You have to fit it. And yeah. if I could show people what you were doing with your hand right now, <laughs> they would not want to be letting your voice fit. <laughs> so who is this charismatic young fellow I'm sitting here with today? Why, it is the one and only Bat Johnson. Bum, Welcome. Bum, 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 bum. Hey, Bat. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are Thank you? you for inviting me. My pleasure. Thank you for recording me when I didn't know I was being recorded. <laughs> yeah, that's part of my voyeuristic <laughs> tendency. <laughs> Well, it works. It works well. Um, you have a lot of material here, I see. Some books. Yeah, I thought I'd uh, bring my books. Oh, so th you wrote these books. Wonderful. I did. I know so you, you wrote could a Tango book recently, but I see you have two others. I have, uh, I have another book that I couldn't get out of the, uh, out of the library, out of the, the bookstore, where I, t I teach at the New York Institute of Technology. And they were sold out of it, and I was upset. Hmm. But, and you uh, don't keep any copies at the at the house? Well, I gave away my last few to a client. I see. To uh, when did you write your first Rod book? How long ago is this going back? Um, listen to this. This is crazy. In the year two thousand, three books came out. Powerful. By, you mean like in total around the world, or by you? But no, th that I wrote. Okay. I wrote. And this is what happened. My first book is called Powerful Principles for Presenters. It's a public speaking book for executives. Second book is called Rich and Famous in 30 Seconds, which is a television commercial acting book. Hmm. I'm holding it up in front of the microphone. Like <laughs> so everybody can, can hear see it. it. <laughs> <laughs> and my next book is called What is This Thing Called Jazz? Hmm. Insights and Opinions from the Players. Forward by Wynton Marsalis. Yeah, I'll tell you the story about how that came about. And then my last book, my latest book, is Tango Intoxication. Um, the first book is the textbook at the New York Institute of Technology. I teach a course called Media Performance and Presentation. Hmm. It's basically a public speaking course. And I taught the same course at NYU for like 15 years. And uh, Cornell 
for eight years. So you lived in Ithaca? No, no. New York City off-campus oh, college I see, I see. Okay. of uh, Cornell. Um, but they wouldn't let me use my book, so I had to use their book. But that's okay. Oh, just at Cornell, though? Yeah, Cornell and NYU. Okay. I had to use their book. No, in, no, NYU, I used my book. Cornell, I used their book. Mercy College, I used their book. And uh, so on, yeah. you have you released three books in one year. Yeah. Which one? But I'm guessing you didn't write them all simultaneously, did you? No. The jazz book came about. Oh, I brought an apple for the teacher. This is an orange. Darn! I did it again. <laughs> Doggone it. <laughs> but I'll eat it anyway. Thank you. Actually, it's a tangerine. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> so I was working on this jazz radio station mm-hmm. called WRBR, which was... Is that also here? Yeah, here in New York. You know, jazz is uh, still an esoteric music form in America. It's far more popular in other parts of the world, particularly in, in Europe. So whenever I, whenever I would play something that was questionably jazz, people would always call and complain. Like, what is this you're playing? It's not jazz. It's, this is shit. Because it this didn't is, follow that standard jazz format? Yeah. This is when, you know, fusion was coming about. Fusion what, what, was what in. What years? Where were we going back to here? This was um, 19... 1978. Oh, so you're talking like bitches brew kind of time, the time weather period. report. Okay. That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, I said, well, this isn't jazz. Okay, well, if this isn't jazz, what is jazz? And they'd say, well, I don't know, but this isn't it. Okay. It's A lot like of phone people calls. People have their opinions about tango like that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I thought, you know, if no one can give me a definition for what jazz is, let me do some research. So, read a bunch of books, interviewed some people. I started interviewing jazz musicians. <laughs> <laughs> Adam hates background noises. I forgot to turn off my phone. He's going to yeah, yell at me. Yeah, this incessant honking outside is driving me bananas, <laughs> but what are we going to do? We're in 30th and 8th. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I started interviewing um, jazz musicians and teachers and musicologists. Um, That's cool. I went to uh, Switzerland, England, Western Africa, interviewing people. And uh, it's got some great players in here, like uh, Buddy Rich, Milt Jackson, Ron Carter, Chet Baker, um, Larry Coriel. So these are great. people you actually sat down and chatted with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's sweet. It, I was really lucky. And you're, so you went abroad to do some research, but you're also here in New York, which is kind of the mecca of right, all this stuff. Right, right. So were you going out to see a lot of stuff back in those days? A lot. Yeah. Every what night. was the scene like? I mean, you're saying that what you played wasn't considered jazz well it was being played live in the clubs back in the late 70s that was considered jazz standard traditional jazz you know like you know dizzy gillespie and uh, john coltrane kind of jazz we played Mm -hmm. that too on the radio but every now and then because they're trying to broaden the audience Mm -hmm. you know just like you know goton project Mm -hmm. you know trying to broaden the audience by 
you yeah. know, putting drums in their music, you know, because they know people can relate to that. But anyway, um, I got access to these musicians because they used to listen to me on the radio every day. Hmm. So it was really easy for me to get these guys. That's cool. Um, I want to read this book. Does this book, your Tango book, which we can talk about later, it, it jumps around a lot. Yeah. It's like... It, it's good for like you can open that almost anywhere and you'll read a couple pages and get a little story. Does the jazz book jump around or is it a little bit? It jumps ahead? around. Yeah, it jumps around. Yeah, but the main the main topic is what is jazz. That's often not always, but often the first question I start with. When you start a project, like write a book, is that what you mean? No, By this particular book, book the okay. jazz book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So I was very happy to finally publish this thing. It was in my closet for like eight years or something because I couldn't get anyone to publish it. Mm. You know, because people said, oh, people don't buy jazz books and no one wants to read it. And so I got frustrated, put it in the closet. Six, eight years, and I decided, you know, I'm going to try again. I'm going to re-edit some stuff and see what, what's going to happen. So Was it originally bigger smaller or it was bigger it was bigger it so was you bigger to cut it down a little bit yeah. to get more likelihood to get published i guess um yeah i guess you know i i, I didn't really know what they were looking for mm. and you know i have a library of jazz books at home and uh there's nothing like this one which is often the case with stuff i write yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so what would you, what what makes it different would you say well it has uh, a single focus and it has interviews from you know or with some well-known jazz musicians um, I went to Africa and interviewed some musicologists and some musicians um, where in Africa were you uh, Senegal, Senegal Dakar okay. Senegal Wow. Um, and that was also like in this era, seventy, late seventies, early eighties yeah, yeah, yeah. time period. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, What's anyway. going on with the music there at this time and point in time? What drew you there? The origins of jazz. Okay. The, like the origins African, of most things. Yeah. <laughs> so they say. Yeah. <laughs> well, tango too. Yeah. So they say. They say that uh, there's a little Even bit of Africa in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, where's your Africa? What? I don't see it. What? Oh, either, it's man. It's deep inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's in there. It's in there. It's in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. So um, I'm pretty proud of this book. Uh, Forward by Wynton Marsalis. And how did that come about? <laughs> well... I used to be a television home shopping host. Okay. You didn't laugh. Most people laugh when I tell them that. <laughs> television sh home shopping host? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it I've was seen a... you in worse, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was called Q2 Television, and it was a sister station to QVC. And uh, it was at Silver Cup Studios in Queens. I was walking to work one day. And I saw a bunch of people coming out of the studio. And they were all dressed up. And I thought, what the heck is this? So one of the people was David Sanborn, hmm. famous saxophone player. Hmm. And Wynton Marsalis. 
and a few other famous jazz musicians. And I said, what the heck's going on here? So I ran up to them and I saw Wenton and I ran up to him and I said, Mr. Marsalis, my name is Pat Johnson and I'm a, one of the hosts here at 22 Television. And um, you didn't tell me you hosted a home shopping. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I sell cheap shit. On yeah, TV. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna sell your new but album. I like your music. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, I said uh, I'm also writing a. I, I work on W. I worked on WRVR Radio, and I'm writing a jazz book, and I would love to interview you for the book. And he says, well, here, this is my manager. Uh, you know, talk to my manager. I said, okay, great. Manager gave me his card. I tried for like two years to get this guy. No luck. Hmm. Most of the time, they wouldn't even answer the phone, right? I said, what kind of manager is this? Good so, one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to give you some publicity, man. Come on. So one day, there was this great article. In the, I think it was in the Times about what jazz is and went and wrote it. So I got back to them finally and asked them if I could use it for the book. And he said yes. And it's called What Jazz Is and Isn't hmm. by Wenton Marsalis. It's great. It's That's great. Cool. So that's how that came about. The television commercial acting book came about because I was, uh, I was an actor for 25 years. Yeah, we finally found your commercial. Yeah. You <laughs> Adam tried to embarrass me. Well. Tried to, tried to blackmail. Tried to blackmail to blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't tell anybody the YouTube uh, Bat Johnson in a Tide commercial. Is it a Tide commercial? Whisk. 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 Yeah, that was good. So you're a, you've been in like TV, broadcasting, radio your whole professional career. Yeah. Okay. This started back. That's really the only thing I've ever done. Okay. And I'm, when does this start? How long ago did you get into this? I started radio in the 60s, in 1968. Hmm. So and I this saw. Is something you went to school for? Or did you? Yeah. Okay. I went to a broadcasting school, and uh, I saw a lot of the great bands. I, you know, hung out with, drank with, had dinner with, like, interviewed, you know, MC like Janis Joplin and. Chicago. And, and this is here in New York as well? No, this was in, I started in San Diego, my hometown. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was, I was born in the state of Washington, Olympia, Washington, and raised in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. Uh, San Diego, so, was that, did your family have a military background or is it, no? No, no. Um, I have two sisters, seven and eight years older than I am. Hmm. One of my sisters, the oldest, was kind of sickly. Okay. She had asthma. And the doctor said that the climate in Washington was too wet for her and we should move to a drier climate. So we had relatives in San Diego, so we moved to San Diego. Okay. And that's where I was raised. That's a nice place. Beautiful. Yeah. Best weather in America. I know. I was there a long time ago. One of my first road trips, like going back 20 years, and I remember we, we hit the beach one day, and there are all these people, beach bums, literal beach bums, 
on the beach, mm-hmm. and we saw these people sitting there, and I think they were drinking some pints or whatever Boone's, they were drinking. Boone's Farm. Things, yeah. <laughs> and uh, really, really well-tanned white people, you know. And I think we they gave us some weed. Or, I don't know. We started a conversation with them, and they were just saying how, yeah, when it's 70 and sunny, 360 days of the year, you can live on a beach in San Diego. Yeah. So that's what they did. Yeah. 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 I had no idea that I was virtually raised in paradise. Yeah. You know? You don't have, uh, you know, potholes in the highway and, you know, trash and, uh, you know. And I moved to New York. It's like, what is this? Graffiti on the walls. And When did you move to New York? I moved here in 1977. So New York was a total shithole. It was. It was. Subways in, were dangerous. Yeah. I mean. Porn theaters on 42nd Street. One night. When I got off the radio, I was on 42nd and 6th Avenue. Going just to the innocently subway. hanging out there. Yeah, just no, the, no, the, no. Adam, Adam's trying to I just make me. Found myself <laughs> in a porn club. No, I wasn't in the porn shop. I was on the. <laughs> oh, on the corner. Even I was better. on the corner yeah, saying, "Loose joints." No, no, mm-hmm. no. no. Um, I was going home. Mm-hmm. I was going across the street, going to the subway. And I just happened to glance down the street. So your radio station was in Times Square. Forty third. Wow. Yeah. So you one to go one to of the them. center of this every every day or however yeah. often you were. Yeah. yeah. NBC was at Thirty Rockefeller Plaza. But anyway, um, so I just glanced down the down Forty Second Street, and I saw all these lights of all these theaters, and I thought, wow, this is really beautiful. Can imagine what this looked like in 1936. Mm. Beautiful. Then I looked at the titles of these, of these <laughs> movies that were being played, like Debbie Does Dallas, mm-hmm. and all these porn titles, and I thought, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so beautiful anymore. Yeah. Anyway, I got to New York through um, NBC. Brought me here to work on WNBC Radio. Okay. And uh, that was like one of the highlights of my career. I was just, I was, I was so proud. Go to 30 Rock every day, hmm. and walk down the halls, and I'd see John Belushi, and Whoa. I'd see, you know, Gilda Radner, and... You'd see the SNL cast just Yeah, out. yeah, because it's right there in the same building. Right. I was on the second floor, and they were up, like, I don't know, six floors, something like that. Huh. Yeah, it was... Uh, and were you broadcasting, or were you working behind the scenes back then? No, I was on the radio, yeah. Okay. yeah. So yeah. you've always generally been uh, on the radio, like the, the guy on the radio, not, not behind the scenes? Never the behind the scenes. Okay. I've always been on the radio or in front of a camera mm-hmm. or all my life. And so that's yeah. what got you to write this second book or the third book? No, the, you wrote a first book that you don't have with us. Right. That was the one on broadcasting. The, the first book is a public speaking book for executives because oh. I, I do uh, – media training for the NBA. I teach professional basketball players how to give the interviews. I coach doctors and lawyers and architects and business executives how to, you know, make presentations, wow. give speeches and make presentations. And you still do this? I still do yeah. that. Yeah. So you're like a consultant. Yeah. Basically. I'm a consultant and, and an adjunct still. professor. Okay. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of my latest clients is Rod Strickland, who was a New York Nick. Hmm. And, uh, now he's he's a coach and he wants to do television 
So I'm giving him television coaching and training. Yeah. Um, so where was I? Uh, we were talking about coming here, working for NBC. Yeah. Big, big move, big change. Yeah, that was great. The nitty-gritty of New York in the late 70s all the way up until probably the 90s. So you lived like a decade of – how was the street scene in New York back then? Much more dangerous. It was it was dangerous. It was dirty. Yeah. yeah. Would you like sit on a subway back then and like look at your phone? <laughs> what phone? If you had a phone, we didn't have. No, but phones. you know what I mean. Like you're on guard more in those days, right? When you're I out. Sit on the subway and just read. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's your life. It's where you live. You don't really think about it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, subways had graffiti on the outside of the cars, graffiti on the inside. Yeah, yeah, I read an interesting. I just read the Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, uh-huh. and he does a, He talks about how one of the ways they helped clean up the crime in New York was it wasn't by policing more. It was by changing the environment. And one of the things they did was they made sure they started cleaning the subway cars because being in a in an environment that that sort of uh, advocated crime or or even looked like a place where you could get away with doing yeah. it allowed for people to feel more liberated to do that way yeah. and act that way. Yeah, and so they had all these psychologists come in, and they did these studies, and they're like, you know, if we we make the environment seem inappropriate, let's say, for because they were realizing more and more people were causing crimes that normally would never do it, simply because they were in a situation where it felt more comfortable to to behave that way. Right. Right. So the subway was like the big. They say that was like the major thing. Cleaning up the subway, just the graffiti, changed the behavior patterns of a lot of people. It's like, you know, if the police don't care, why should I, exactly. you know? Yeah. What they did was they changed the cars. They didn't really clean up the subways. They got different cars. The old subways all had, like, bench seating. And the new cars, the ones we have now, have these, like, individual pocket seats. Well, the, the, some other cars, some of the yeah. lines have bench, bench seating, seating yeah. as well. But um, the outside was like a, like a stainless steel where paint wouldn't stick to. Hmm. That's why there's no graffiti on there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, kids started scratching with keys yeah, and yeah, stuff, yeah. you know. But, uh, yeah. I often say the New York City subway system is like one of those things that does exactly what it's designed to do, which is move a lot of people quickly. Mm-hmm. For those of you who hate the subway system, it does what it's designed to do. It is the reason New York is as amazing as it is. As yeah. much as it annoys me and frustrates me from time to time, yeah, uh, we could we couldn't have a thriving tango community without the public transportation that we have. It exactly. allows us to leave a milonga at two or three in the morning because a lot of cities, which we've been to, you know, they close the milongas when the public transit closes. So they're yeah. talking eleven or twelve at night, yeah. and that just doesn't help a scene thrive. I, no. I think you know. No. And no. just, you know, getting to work. I mean, everything about New York is based on public transit. What I like about it is that you'll sit in a car and you'll be shoulder to shoulder with every single person from around the world in this little box. And you all just sit there and observe one another and kind of, you know, tolerate and appreciate that, you know, there's just there's Chinese people, there's Hasidics, there's a little white boy from Cleveland. You know, there's, there's everybody's just in this car. And we realize that we're all really similar, even though we have a lot of differences. Yeah. And we're all taking a train somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and occasionally, a conversation will break yeah. out. <laughs> or like, one person does something and, like, 30 people react. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. then they're bonding now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do that a lot. Yeah. I do that a lot. I start conversation. 
especially the one place where people don't talk to each other, and that's the elevator. Mm. I love starting conversations in the elevator. You know, just some stupid random stuff that I know that can relate to, right? Oh, that reminds me. I wanted to ask you. Uh-oh. I don't. I don't prepare notes really when I do these. Not yet, at least, because I like to sort of see where it'll go. And you know, and each guest so far has been pretty different. But I always notice about you, and I, I remember even like I think we had lunch one day, and we went, to, we popped into a deli, and you just like started chatting with the deli guy. And you, you, basically, my point is, where do you? Uh, how is it that you're always just so? I don't want to say happy, but. What drives your optimism and your love for humanity? <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. That's but a, it's that's something a, very uniquely Bat Johnson. Um, how can I say this without sounding corny? You probably can't, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's simple. I love people. Well, I do too, but they annoy me sometimes, and I'm. <laughs> They're, you know, no. We all have something, you know. Yeah. We all. No, I love people, and people are really, really interesting. And when I talk about this, I'll point out, you know, some random person. I say, see that guy over there? You could take that guy, take his life apart, and write the most interesting movie you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. We are all so incredibly interesting. And I like to dig in there and find out. And that's one of the reasons um, I was successful on the radio, is because... I understand how people think, uh-huh. and if I don't, like if you're a stranger, even even though I don't know you, I know you. Mm-hmm. We are truly all the same. Doesn't matter if you grew up as a Buddhist or you grew up, you know, it doesn't matter. We are all the same. And in this country, we talk about race. There's only one race. It's the human race. What are you talking about? Get out of here. You know. Um, people fuel me because they are so doggone interesting and they don't even know it. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I agree. Um, and I, I, I was thinking about self-esteem the other day and how, because I'm mentally preparing to sit down and chat with you today and I'm thinking about, you know, you seem to have uh, an abundance. I don't it's self-esteem because it's not, it's not arrogance. It's not uh, cockiness. It's, but I see people, again, I was on the subway observing this, and I'm seeing all these interesting people around me. And I'm thinking, you know, the one thing that I think destroys hum- our, uh, the individual is our own lack of appreciation for the self. It's self-esteem. Yeah, right? yeah. And, um, and that's, that's, that's sad. I mean, I suffer from it, and I'm guessing you have moments when you maybe have, is- you know. Yeah. But when um, I say I suck. <laughs> no, I seriously <laughs> I wasn't sure how to word it. It's just like, I'm assuming you're not 24-7, you know, bippity-boppity-bat-johnson. I don't even know that I'm bippity-boppity-bat-johnson. <laughs> you are, though. That's, so we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And when I observe you, and I can see, like, you probably don't go to a milonga if you're not in the, in the headspace to be in a good, if you're not in a good headspace, let's put it that way. It doesn't know? work that way for me. It doesn't work that way? Like, you won't go out? Or you will, but you'll be... No, the milonga music transforms me. Hmm. I mean, I, I got into radio because of music. Hmm. I started dancing because of music. There's no su- For me, there's no such thing as being in a bad mood at a milonga. Hmm. 
I walk, I hear that music. I walk in the door and I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to give some love. I want that music to come in through my ears, into my brain, into my chest, into my body and do me. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's really simple. So you're La one yeah, last no, thing no, last please. week. Yes. I was, um, was I in this room or the next room? And a guy walked up to me, older Latin gentleman. And he said, you know, someday I want to talk to you. I said, okay, well, let's talk right now. He said, you know, everybody loves you and you're always so happy and you're always so up and it is, what's your secret? I said, huh? <laughs> really? I can point out a couple of people in this room right now who hate me so much they won't even talk to me. What are you talking about? <laughs> he said, no, no. I said, no, I just, uh, I just love people and I just want to give a little love. And I think about that a lot more now because whew, I really hate to bring this up, but our current administration, mm -hmm. the first few months after we got our new individual in the White House, I saw it on the street. Mm -hmm. I saw so much anger and so much nastiness. And I thought, no, we have to double up on the love. We have to double up to, to counteract this, this, how can I put it? This venom yeah. that's coming it's, out of that yeah, town. It's, it's, but I don't want to get onto yeah, that no, subject. Yeah, no, it's true, but it's sad that we have to take responsibility for, well, it's not sad, it's, it's, it's society, it's, it's what it should be. Like, when there's, when there's hate being accepted and, 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 you know, almost advocated in a way, subtly, they think, subtly, um, it takes other people to kind of like pay it forward in a positive way and yeah, and try to make up for the lack of pay it forward and all that stuff. Yeah, know? we are all we have, mm -hmm. and I think that part of my attitude comes from my parents. Um, I also spend some time, you know, studying yoga and reading Eastern philosophy books and you know, spend some time in the world of ultra positivity. Well, I was going to ask you about your peer groups. Uh, that's like a very clinical way to put it, but study, I, this is also a clinical way to put it, but studies have shown we are, um, we tend to be creatures of our environment in terms of who we hang out with. Absolutely. Nurture uh, over nature. So you mentioned your parents had a positive influence on you, but I'm also curious when you were younger and you're in San Diego, you're in college, you know, you're, you're, who are you hanging out with? How are they creating a positive, uh, you know, outlook or helping you foster that kind of positive outlook? If uh -huh. it always had been that way since you were younger. Well, um, looking back on my life, um, I had a wide variety of friends I had a lot of Japanese friends. So they're polite. <laughs> <laughs> now I get they, it. They, that explains they, it. They, uh, you know, made me an honorary Japanese, you know, um, you know, Japanese Americans. Mm -hmm. um, they used to invite me over to their house and their parents would cook for me and, you know, and love on me. And, you know, I also had a lot of Mexican friends. Mm -hmm. 
same thing. Invite me over to their house and cook for me and the mothers would love on me. And, you know, um, I had a lot of white friends. Now, where I grew up, we didn't have the Irish neighborhood and the German neighborhood and the Jewish neighborhood. They're just gen- just white people, <laughs> you know? At that point in time, it's all, yeah. In that town where I grew up, mm-hmm. we had Filipinos. We had uh, a lot of Guamanians mm. because of the U.S. Navy, a lot of people from Guam. Right. Right. Uh, we had Mexicans, black people, and... Uh, you know, Japanese, not many Chinese, mm-hmm. but a lot of Japanese. And um, I don't know, I just, I just learn from those cultures and from those people. And that's how I really knew that we're just people. Right, right, right. You know, we're shaped by having all of the different experiences around different, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Diverse, um, the diversity. Yeah. Right. One of my best friends named Danny O'Keefe, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, freckle-faced little Irish kid. I didn't know he was Irish. He was just mm. Danny O'Keefe. What does right, that right, mean, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, was, I, I didn't experience the vast array of black people. You know, black people I knew were Americans. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any Africans or any Jamaicans or even Cubans or, you know, I knew Spanish-speaking black people or people of high melanin content existed. Mm -hmm. Or I often say I have a high degree of chocolaticity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... uh, I think those are the things that um, made me who I am. Yeah, hanging out with people, a little bit uh, everybody. I noticed, yeah, like I've lived in New York. By the way, this is my fifteenth. This month marks my fifteenth year. Excellent. Year. We should celebrate some point. But Heck um, yeah. I noticed, yeah, now that I've been here for so long and, and meeting people that have grown up here, especially, they have a very different relation to people I think than I did growing up in a pretty segregated you know part of Cleveland which is like a white suburb and you're hearing things as a kid like oh there's some there's those Arabs in school like here it's like you are one of of, you are all minorities even if you're white you know whereas like where I grew up it's not so much so so you're you're influenced by this this talk around you you know of course we have two black kids in the school and it's like okay they're now we think that no now let's go I'm, beat, let's go beat them up no it's not that it's like it's like you're it's almost like you're being told that um they're rare and it's really just you don't live around them yeah <laughs> but you grow up as a kid yeah. thinking like oh this is so different from me because there's only two of them and instead of being around mixed races growing up as a child and then just you're like oh we're all just people you know there's like a learning you have to for me it was like a, you have to go through like this experience of learning like like I had to get the hell out of there and travel the world uh, I also had a desire because it was just like I knew you know at that age like I knew deep down we were all just people but I had to go and experience that yeah. first because where the way I was brought up and it wasn't like my parents you know, it was just 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 the systemic society of it like just feeling like this is weird why are 
why do I feel so separated from the people based on like their language or their color or or their whatever you know it just seems so silly yeah basically yeah language that's another thing I was exposed to not like a New Yorker but I was you know exposed to Spanish and Japanese and not not French or no you know French or Italian European languages but uh, Spanish was my first foreign language mm. and I grew up 17 miles from the Mexican border mm -hmm. you know and so people would say oh so you know the, the lyrics to the songs in the milonga don't you I said uh, no I don't <laughs> and even if it was in English I don't listen to that anyway but mm. you know well talk about that later when we talk more about tango but uh, so you hear it more as a melody but not necessarily as the story of the way this the words are being spoken no yeah. no but even songs in english i don't pay attention to the lyrics I mean, yeah I, I don't pay attention to the lyrics like literally i i pay attention to how the sound of the lyrics comes out absolutely yeah. Otherwise, they might as well just be, well, they could just be speaking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like in rock and roll, you can't hear the lyrics anyway because it's all distorted and everyone's trying to sound like a black Mississippi cotton picker from 1936. <laughs> what did he say? I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I remember once... <clears throat> I was uh, I was at the gym. I used to be a member of the, the Penn Club, University of Pennsylvania Club. Uh, my ex-wife went to Penn. So I got free gym membership. So I was on the treadmill one day, and they had television monitors in front of us, and they had, I think, MTV or VH1 was on. Uh, we can talk about that too later. I used to be a VJ on VH1. We'll really? Talk about that. Yeah. Right. Um, so they were interviewing Eric Clapton. And I forgot the question, but Clapton said, we do all we can to sound like the black Southern blues man. Hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, it's kind of interesting because only the British musicians will tell you that rock and roll came from the black population in America. Hmm. Well, I mean, and Rolling Stones named their band after a Muddy Waters song. Exactly. Out of respect and adulation. I don't know. They really, yeah. They, a lot of the British musicians from that era. Yeah. They studied, you know. Yeah. They used to get those R&B records, those specialty, you know, specialty records? <laughs> specialty records. Um... I see the label. It's like white, yellow, and black with a big curly S for specialty. Hmm. And uh, yeah, like Rod Stewart, like a lot of those guys were in art school too. They were in art school studying these R&B records, you know, like pouring over them just like, and that's what I did later uh, when I came home from the army, I was in the military. Really? And I was in Korea. No, not the Korean War, Adam. Come on, don't <laughs> stop looking at me like that. Thinking, damn, are you that old? No. Did you know my grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> he was over there too. Um, 
But you were stationed in Korea. Yeah, yeah. And what was that? Where I learned to read, write, and speak Korean. Really? Yeah. Um, so when I came home. When was this? This was in the 60s. Yeah. I, so you um, were like, you could have gone to Vietnam. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Yeah. I miss Vietnam by three people. Jesus. That's a whole other story. They, it, anyway, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. So when I came home, FM radio was in existence. When I left, FM radio had like classical music, and there was only like one, and it had like Montavani and strings, and you know that's and classical music. But when I came home, there is this scream and zonk and rock and roll on this one FM radio station, and I fell so in love with that. I used to listen to the radio all day, every day, and when I went to bed at night, put the radio on my ear, and I'd listen until either I fell asleep or until they played something I didn't like, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I would, uh, after I, I, I was living with my parents when I got out of the military because I didn't have any money or any idea what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So this music totally captivated me. And I would spend my food money, my rent money after I moved out, my gas money, on albums, and I get the the new album by whomever, I don't know, Deep Purple or you mm. know, uh, who did Inagata da Vida? Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> Iron Butterfly. And I would take the cover, and I would study every micro inch of the cover. I'd turn it over and I'd read all the credits. Who did the artwork? Where was it recorded? Of course, the musicians who played bass and who played drums and blah, 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 blah. And I knew everything about that album. Why? Because I was in love with it. And that's another, another reason I think I became successful on radio. Because mm. I was, and I still to this day, I'm a very active music listener and I'm extremely serious about it you know because it gives me so much joy you know um, so do you do you uh, you know a lot of I know like having dinner that one time with Ed and Chico at, at their place and you and Ed kind of quizzing each other and you were very you knew a lot about like the most random the most random stuff. Do you study the history of music as well? Yeah. Are you? Um, yeah. Yeah. And tango as well? Yeah. 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 I have um, in my bedroom, I have a built in bookshelf that is uh, eight row, let's see, five rows high and eight slots wide. It's about 20 feet long mm -hmm. and about oh, seven feet tall, seven feet high. Mm -hmm. And it's all books. And I have about mm, 35 tango books. Oh, wow. And yeah, I've read all of them. You find that the, 
how, how when uh, if you can remember offhand because I'm you know reading this book now and I've read a few and I'm learning that the I'm feeling that some of the stories in the earlier tango books are, I'm noticing are starting to change <laughs> based on the amount of research being done and maybe they're finding more knowledgeable people to talk to about the history so when one book perhaps written in the 90s they would say oh yeah you know tango started uh, here in this brothel and, and now they're like well actually they're they're doing more research i'm curious if you've noticed in your you know reading all these books if it's consistent or if things have kind of changed a little bit yeah it's it changes a little bit yeah but it's a lot of folk stories it's just like word of mouth stories yeah a lot of what we're what we're getting yeah. it's not the music itself but just like the culture and the history of the dance yeah like one of the main things that I read was Tango started in 1850. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can they know that? Yeah. Eight, that's pretty specific. Yeah. 1850. <laughs> in 1849, nope, nope. 1852, nope, nope. 1850. How do you know? Were you around? Did, you know, did someone, you know? Mm -hmm. And everything that is happening isn't necessarily being documented. Right. So, you know, you don't really know, mm -hmm. you know? And there's no fossils. Um, or DNA to like, you know, exactly. put under a microscope. Exactly. Sort of like, oh, 1850. Okay, it was a dark and stormy night. Yes. <laughs> January 30th <laughs> on a hot day in Buenos Aires. The, well, for me, the best book I read was uh, Tango, the Art History of Love hmm. by, what's his name, Ferris, uh, Tom, Ferris Thompson. Tom. He's a Yale professor. Know that book? No, no. Oh, it's really good. It's very detailed and really, really eye-opening. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I need to stay learning to not get uh, burnout because I do this for a living or bored or you know whatever. Yeah. The Philadelphia Tango Festival is coming up. And there's some new teachers in the community, Augustine and Natalie. Yeah, I know. And I just them. really like their Natalia. Yeah. yeah. And I just I'm I want to like check out some of their classes because they're doing these musicality her. classes, and I've taken a million of them um, with Horacio and different like you know authorities. But this is a new generation, and I'm just curious to hear what they've learned and how they're going to present it. And um, I'm also reading this book right now, the Michael Lavoca. Yeah. And I'm uh, just reminding myself sometimes when I'm not constantly learning, I, I hit a lull. And, that, and like you mentioned about the music, like I, anytime I feel uninspired, I need to just like put on some music and like study it and rediscover something new in it. This is so fascinating about tango is that you really can just listen to the same stuff and rediscover, not rediscover, you know, let alone rediscover. Yeah. Uh, new elements that you're going to be excited to, to dance and to just pull out and yeah if you're paying attention mm -hmm. you know you can discover something new in the same song every night yeah. and if you don't discover something new in the song you're going to discover something new and nuanced in your movement based on who you're dancing with mm -hmm. and what she's giving you yeah you know it's it's fascinating to me Fascinating. Uh, so let's go to the tango part a little bit. You started dancing. I moved to New York in 04. You were already uh, hot, hot, out and about and uh, dancing every night at the Milonga. So when was your beginning? I started dancing in 1997. Okay. 
and I, I was uh, doing ballroom. I was dancing all the, you know, Viennese waltz and waltz and foxtrot, hustle, swing, triple rhythm swing, West Coast swing, jive, jitterbug, salsa. Were you going out to events or were you just doing classes? Um, a lot of events back then for that stuff? No, I was just doing classes and practice parties. Okay. Um, Tango came into my life about a year later in about 1998. Mm -hmm. And it was just another dance with all the dances I was doing. I see. Then I discovered that the ballroom music was starting to bore me. You don't like Bette Midler? I love Bette Midler. (laughs) I love Bette Midler. Bette Midler. Man, she's... I have to keep my language clean here. Um, so I stopped doing a lot of the ballroom dances because of the music. Mm-hmm. I was in love with Foxtrot because I love the music of the big bands, the American big bands. Um, so when I eliminated the ballroom music, I discovered I was only doing rhythm dances. I was only doing, you know, cha-cha and hustle and swing and then I thought, well, that's not good either. I'm not going to be a well-rounded dancer if I'm only doing rhythm dances. Then I remembered every time I heard tango music, I would see old black and white movies in my mind's eye because you could hear the scratches and stuff in mm-hmm. the old 78 RPM records, right? So I thought, you know, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to make this my art dance. So I started art in the sense of ex- self-expression. No, dance, just just or? in terms of it just felt more like creative? art. Yeah, because yeah, it was so different from all the other dances and music. Yeah, right. So it represented like high art to me. So um, I put tango in there to be my smooth dance, as it's called, to take the place of the ballroom stuff. And uh, it took a while. It took a while to catch on because every time I'd hear the music, the bandoneon was like so shrill and harsh and you know, off-putting to my ear because you know, I had a raw ear that never really heard that before, right? So I would dance every day. My classes during the week were from 5.30 until 9.30. Then at 9.30, they'd have practice parties. And tango was my last class. And then right after, they'd have a practice party. So and where are you doing this? Back here then? in New York at yeah. the old dance sport Broadway at 60th Street. Okay. Yeah. And who are you working with? Who's your teacher? Do you remember? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Cecilia Saia. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have some Cecilia stories for you. Um, Ronan Kayat, um, uh, Mariana Parma. Uh, who else? Uh, a lot. A lot. In the back of my this Tango book, I, I said that I've studied with 172 teachers. You actually were able to tally it up? Well, they're named. (laughs) I named each one of them. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, one day, I go into a tango practice party. 
And I hear the bandoneon, and I hear the music, and it was like the ceiling was coming down on my head, like compressing me. And it was really extremely uncomfortable. Hmm. And I said, man, I have to get the hell out of here. So I ran out of the room, and I ran upstairs to dance salsa, you know? And then I said to myself, you know, if you're gonna learn this dance, first you have to learn the music. Yeah, and you gotta like the bend on you. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So they had uh, Tower Records in Lincoln Center, which is not far from where the dance studio was. So I used to go in there and I used to buy CDs, buy CDs, buy CDs. And they had a tango section. They had a, a world section. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah. And there was a guy there who was so knowledgeable about everything international, everything world music. So what I did was every single night for years, I'd put on my headphones and I'd listen to tango music when I went to bed for, I don't know, three, four, five years, every night, every night, every night. So doing, uh, doing that training for myself, now, today, I know like almost every instrument of every song played at the milonga. It's, it's there, mm -hmm. you know, because of all that inculcation that I did for myself. Um, and now, I'm not going to say it's the only thing I listen to, but I very seldom listen to like American music. You know, yeah. I mean, I still listen to jazz and you know Sinatra, and you know, because I like uh, like the Count Basie orchestra and that sort of thing. But um, anyway, that's how I learn tango music. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I learned. I find that because I got into DJing very early in early on with Robin's support, that helped me learn the music because I was constantly putting together tandas and, and playing at different milongas and this and that. But I find the average dancer doesn't have a lot of, besides being at a milonga, they don't have a lot of time or put in a lot of time to studying the music. So it takes them even more years than you who sort of make yourself listen to it every night for a couple of years or a DJ in training who's studying it just so he can better put together a tanda or a playlist. Yeah. Um, but it's so important. That's why understanding the structure of the music can help you learn about it faster I think if you understand how they're all kind of constructed similarly in a form yeah. in, in the format in the structure. yeah 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 I mean for me it's uh, it's it's why I dance and it should be why we all dance you know I often say I dance with two four and because of the music so you would say you're uh, main focus or not focus but inspiration is the music absolutely and then the people uh no I mean, i'm not going to ask you to put it, this in the order of you it's know. no it's 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 the music and then it's me and my movement and my interaction and my relationship my physical relationship yeah. to this invisible thing called music mm -hmm. right it's like what does this make me want to do? Yeah. And then you 
Yeah, I I'm, I agree. Like the music has to. I think. I mean, I know. You know, I've just talked to many people, and they their first thing was the dance itself, and that's cool. I mean, I'm not disagreeing. Everybody's their own person, but for me, I, was, I I'm with you. Like the music and the black and white. Like you mentioned, that image, that romantic, romanticized imagery. Like when I first heard tango, and saw people doing it. The whole aura of it sold me, mm-hmm. you know. The idea sold me before I even took a step. Yeah. And then, and that's how I knew I was hooked, because I was like, I already love this. I don't even know what the hell it is, <laughs> you know. And because I always enjoyed, I never listened to classical music that much, but I always really enjoyed it. Um, but tango music to me was like classical music on steroids in a way, because the quality of the musicianship is next level yeah i mean they they are amazing and the compositions are amazing and then on top of that you can actually move to it so to me it was like the match made in heaven like classical music on steroids that you can dance to (laughs) and you are the drummer yeah 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 essentially like you're the you can be the percussive instrument with your movement and as well as the melodic but Mm -hmm. you can also be the violin yeah no sure yeah but uh just all of those yeah, I, I'm. I when you said you went from music to moving your body to the music in that in that sort of order, I, I'm totally there with you. Yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it took forever to learn how to move to the music. I remember um, Santiago Steele was one of my teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember who was teaching the class. Maybe it was Santiago. Uh, it doesn't matter. But the five count basic took me forever to understand it's like uh, how, uh, how do you do that what <laughs> first I step wait a minute do I step to the right do, or to the left or, or do I step back uh, uh, it's like that's so simple bad well just put your foot there <laughs> yeah oh and the, the next thing the next conundrum was how do I dance with someone on my chest. Mm. It's like, she's in my way. Yeah, can you, right. uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. Can, can you move over there so I can dance? Because, <laughs> you know, I came from salsa and all these other yeah, dances where, I, you know, she's not on my I chest. I think tango's the only dance, really, that you're full on body to body. Yeah, well, some of the ballroom dances you are too, but I think tango's the only dance, only partner dance where you can be on your left foot and she can be on her right, oh, or you can yeah. be on her right and you can, you know. That's true too. That whole thing, yeah, just it took a while to understand that How too. long was your, um, I don't know if you can remember because you're like 100 years old, but. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> Did he go there? No. Oh! Do you remember? He didn't say you, that, did he? When you started dancing, did you start open and move to close, or did you yeah. start right away trying to do close? Open. Yeah. Started to open. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the most advantageous way to go about it. I, I, I've, you know, spoken with teachers over the years that I, you know, colleagues that they're like, no, you got to start them close. And yeah. then I'm more like, you got to get them enjoying the music with movement. Yeah. And then you can indoctrinate them with whatever <laughs> beliefs yeah. you have. Um, but so I think if you're uncomfortable for a class, you're not going to come back. You know, like we have to also consider we're trying to like get these people into something that they're not necessarily bra- born and raised to appreciate. Yeah. So if yeah. you're just like stuck on somebody's chest and you can't move and you don't feel comfortable, 
you may not be like, oh, I can't wait to do that again next yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But so, not so many, but many teachers who I've worked with who are from Argentina said, I never heard of the concept of close embrace until mm -hmm. I came to America. Yeah. They said, you know, there's only one way to dance tango, and that's close. Mm -hmm. And then they said, you know, this close embrace is, sounds like a marketing ploy to me, you know. Um, and I, I see what they're, what, they're, what they're saying. But still, um, very seldom do I dance open. Yeah. And I think one of the main reasons is because I want to protect her. Mm. And in open, I feel like, uh, you know, she's vulnerable, mm. vulnerable to attack and being stepped on and, you know, bumped into, I think. Because I notice, like, late at night when the floor, you know, kind of opens, opens up, up, becomes a little more vacant, I open up. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's also, like, the nature of, you know, as they say, like, what created open and close embrace was, you know, the story goes, close was danced in the city and open was danced in the suburbs because they had more room. Right. And essentially, different style of music being played as well. All these different things are a factor. Yeah. I always dance close when I start. I mean, unless my partner just doesn't go for it or I can tell, like, they're not comfortable. But I just believe the dance is a close embrace yeah. in the heart of it. I'm not saying I don't dance open. I don't do Nuevo. I don't do all this exploratory stuff because I think it's also fun. But, yeah, bottom line is, like, if you're there with somebody in close and you're both feeling the music and that's just – that's all it, that's all you really – need you yeah. know yeah i want to i want to feel her mm -hmm. i want to feel her music yeah and i want to feel the music through her so that's why you know i i never walk up to her grab her and start dancing no you know i just stand there and feel her for a little while mm -hmm. then i move Something I learned from Jorge Torres mm. when he was dancing with uh, Mariela Fraganicho. Just the way he used to walk up to her was so beautiful, it used to make me cry. Mm. And then he'd take his time. It, it's a ceremony. Yeah, definitely. Take his time getting into the embrace. Then he'd move. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so beautiful! <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, I appreciate that very much. I see people; they look like, in a way, they look like they're five-year-old kids. The way they sometimes walk up to the girl and just start bopping around, and the next thing you know, they're off, and you're like, "Man, yeah. you know, give it some time here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is four yeah. songs. It's you got a while here to build something beautiful with another person in this moment, and you just go off like, bam, you know." Like, where, where are you going to go from there? Yeah. That's what I, yeah. I always wonder. I'm like, what is your, where are you going to pull out the next, like, you got to build for something here, you know? What, wh where's the story going? You yeah. just came out with the climax, like, right away, and it wasn't even that good. <laughs> 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 like yeah. Christopher Nisopoulos, you know him, right? Yeah, like, I do. You know, this guy, a long time ago, when the seaport was still happening, he, he led me. I love this story because it's, I experienced it, but it's so fucking true. You know, back then when I was getting started, Nuevo was the craze. 
So I was working with Robin and Close Embrace, and then I was working with like Caleb and Ting and different people doing open because I was just, I wanted to do everything, and mm -hmm. I still do. Mm -hmm. um, Christopher's in town, and, you know, he's notoriously Close Embrace, and he moves like a fucking snail. Mm -hmm. And he led me to, to do a song uh, at the seaport, and for the whole song, he barely moved. Barely moved. It was like, I was just like, I was getting so tense. I was just like, <laughs> and at the very end, he did like the basic turn to the left with the cross. Quick, quick, slow cross. Uh -huh. Zoom. And I about had an orgasm. <laughs> and I learned something really important that night. Contrast. That the contrast and more. Like, he, something that this dance offers is this buildup and release. And when you don't have that, you're you're missing a lot of what like like what Pugliese offers in, in these orchestras with like the zumba and like yeah the dynamic tension is yeah. amazing. Yeah, I remember seeing Jorge Torres dance for the first time at um, La Belle Epoque. Milonga with his long <laughs> half mile long staircase mm. to the like the 18th floor you had to walk up. So he was dancing with uh, Mariella and he had on a black double breasted suit, white shirt, and a gold tie. I remember this as if it were yesterday. And he's dancing. And I'm thinking, why is she dancing with him? And, it, you know, his hair was pulled back, and he was really dark. That's why they call him Pantero. <laughs> and I'm thinking, come on, do something. What, what? This is nothing. I'm going home. And then he sends her, and he takes her into a mulinete. He lets her go, and he does like 25 spins on one foot by himself. Bam! And he catches her, like right at, and I thought, yeah. oh. It looked like a ceiling fan being placed <laughs> on high speed. It looked like the, the, the Tasmanian devil. It looked like a cartoon. Mm. It was, I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And I thought, oh, that's why she's dancing with him. <laughs> yeah. And then from that moment on, um, I was, a, and still am, a big Jorge Torres fan. You yeah, know? yeah, he's, he's really special, yeah. I never went through the Nuevo phase. Mm-hmm. Maybe because maybe I didn't want to wear a white belt. You know? Oh, fuck the white belt. I have, like, I've made, like, public statements against the fucking white belt. I'm like, I see white belts. I'm like, come on. I have a good friend who I'll, he wears the white belt, but he, he kind of pulls it off. But in general, I feel like the white belt is, like, this symbol of, A, bad taste. It's just bad taste. But, yeah, it's, it's very identifying, like, the white belt. People. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like I'm gonna get I, crucified for criticizing white belts. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, that is what it is, man. It's a white belt. I remember when I was uh, living in Phoenix, and uh, the white belt and white shoes—that was the thing. 
It was like all Republicans, mm. white belt and white shoes. <laughs> so, um, no, you're conducting the interview. I'm not gonna. Yeah, what? Well, what? What? Where? Where are we? How much time do we have? We're uh, we're an, over an hour in. I had. Oh. I did want to go back. I am a little curious if you don't mind talking about it. This uh, Vietnam. You mentioned. Oh, okay. I don't know a lot of people. Okay. You know from that generation. Well, uh, here's what happened. I was uh, going to San Diego City College. Mm-hmm. I was working in a jack-in-the-box. I'd been elevated to assistant manager. Ooh, <laughs> a fast food burger joint. <laughs> Making probably 38 cents an hour. I don't know. And uh, my mother called me. And... Uh, I was at the front window, and then the guy I was working with said, oh, your mom's on the phone. So, okay, great. So I picked up the phone. I said, hello? My mom said, that thing is here. What thing, Mom? Draft board. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, oh, man. And at this point... The war is in full. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, they were drafting people. But it's like, is this already when like people are dying? Like, oh yeah, well, forty thousand. Vietnam, I think, started in like 64, 64. Before that, like sixty-two or well, something. Well, Kennedy got everybody in there. Yeah, but it got as escalated during like LBJ. Right, 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 right. So that's like later. Yeah. So uh, I said, oh, don't worry, mom. You know, everything will be okay. I went home and I saw the notice and uh, I thought it's another thing I felt like I'm divinely guided and protected and I have angels surrounding me and nothing will ever happen to me I don't have to worry about a thing ever maybe that's part of my attitude maybe the thing yeah maybe (laughs) goes back to the personality yeah yeah so, um, guys were doing uh, a number of things to get out of the draft, like uh, like our president. Notice I never used his name. Um, uh, guys were claiming to have bone spurs. Oh, yeah. And one guy said, if you take a bar of soap and you put it under your armpits, it will raise your blood pressure and they won't take you. <laughs> Or if you have asthma, say, oh, I have asthma. Maybe they won't take me because I have asthma. Okay. So anyway, um, I went to the bus station, downtown San Diego, to be sent to the Los Angeles Induction Center. The bus arrives, we get off the bus, and uh, a Marine officer, I, I, I don't know if he was an officer, he was in his, his dress clothes, didn't have his hat on. He had uh, you know, red hair and it was a, like a flat top crew cut, right? So he walks up to us and he starts yelling at us hmm. and cursing at us. And it's like Alabama accent or something, I don't know. <laughs> freckle-faced dude, 
Okay, all you boys. I'm not going to use the words he was using. Okay, I want you guys to line up. Line up. All you boys, line up. And then, okay, we're civilians. Yelling at me. (laughs) Then he said, okay, I'm going to take all you boys from you down to here. You come with me. What they did was they took a group of guys, sent them from there to on-the-job training in the jungles in Vietnam. Jesus Christ. Another group of guys, or they, a portion of that group, they sent them to Hawaii. So you did get drafted. I was drafted, drafted. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I missed Vietnam by like three guys. There were like two other guys in front of me. I was the third guy. Jesus. Right? So... Um, I, uh, I got sent to uh, Fort Bliss, Texas, in western Texas for basic training, teaching, you know, how to survive and how to, how to kill people, <laughs> how to shoot a gun, mm-hmm. how to throw a hand grenade. <laughs> Jesus. Really, yeah. really. Um, then I was sent to eastern Texas for what's called AIT, Advanced Individual Training. And uh, that's where they determine what your job's going to be in the military. So I tried everything to make sure that I didn't become... Like an infantry. Infantry, exactly. So I took a Spanish test, and I took a typing test, and I took some other kind of tests. And so the guy says, so what do you want to do in the military? He said, I don't know. How can I know? I don't know. I said, well, you know, I love cars, and I'm really good. Maybe I'll work in the motor pool. He said, nah, you're too bright for that. Why don't you take this test and see what, you know. Uh, okay. So I uh, took the Spanish test, and apparently I did okay. It was time to take this, the typing test. So I go to the location. The, the guy gives me some paper, and he says, you know, sit, sit at that typewriter and type this. So I said, okay. I put the paper in the typewriter. Mr. Confident, you know, I'm going to knock this out of the park. Why are you so confident, Pat? Well, because I was, I took eighth grade typing, and I was the fastest male typer, typist in that class. So I knew that I could nail this, Mm -hmm. right? So Mr. Super Confident, puts the paper in the typewriter, and the guy says, okay, you ready? I said, yeah, I'm ready. He says, okay, go. And I go, my fingers were flying. Smoke was coming off of that typewriter. Take the paper out, walk up to him, hand him the paper, and he looked at it. He looked at me, looked at the paper, and he hands the paper back to me. He said, I think you might want to do this over again. I said, what? And I looked at it, and the paper said, XOQ17 exclamation mark, hashtag. I had my fingers on the wrong keyboard, the wrong set of keys. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, I'm dead. I'm, they're going to send me so to you Vietnam. You were like one step over yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're not proofreading as you go here, I guess? 
No, you're looking at the paper. You're oh, just, right, yeah, right, right. You're trying to bang these words mm -hmm. out, right? So he let me do it again, and uh, I scored high. I did well, and uh, I got sent to Korea, and uh, I worked in the Eighth Army headquarters. I was uh, worked in a place called Stratcom, Strategic Communications, mm -hmm. and um, I was. Uh, an administrative specialist, and my job was to read these messages that would come across the, the teletype machines in the back, right? So I had um, a confidential, a secret, top secret, and top secret cryptographic clearance, which would allow me to read you know, any level of message hmm. that came into Korea. So. My job was to read the message, determine what it was about, and then send it to the proper mm -hmm. agency. And uh, Korea was, was really a lot of fun. So you lived on a base, I'm guessing? Yeah. And yeah. how long were you there? The initial tour of duty is 13 months. Okay. But if you extend your time there, I had five months before I got out, then you could get out early. So I, I, I stayed in Korea for 18 months. Wow. And that's when you learned how to do write Korean and read and yeah. speak Korean. And yeah, Korean. and I still remember a lot of it. Hmm. So, you know, like there's some tango dancers around here. Like like I used to talk to London. Uh -huh. First time I said something to in, in Korean to London Hall, he goes, what the? Yeah, how, did, how, how do you do that? How does black guy speak in Korean? Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just language, you idiot. You think Koreans are the only people who can speak Korean? <laughs> I have a friend who's fluent in Russian, and he's not Russian. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go um, So yeah, I so had. So then that. you were discharged, or you? How does that work? Or you just you, you do your time, and then they're like, "All right, you can go home. You're done." Yep, that's cool. Sent me to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. And now at this point, final. do you have you have the opportunity to like decide if you want to do this? With your life right like stay in serve your country maybe get into like administrative stuff here in the state you know stay in in the country and like work from here as a soldier right yeah you can you can re-up right okay yeah but there's no way no way i'm no yeah leave me alone what did you do did you like the, the was it highly disciplined as they say you know is it did you like basic that? basic training was yeah yeah it How was how long is that it was a couple months. Yeah, a few a few months. I was in Fort Bliss, Texas, in the summer, and it was hot, hot. as hell. <laughs> and one of the punishments, if you did something wrong, was you'd have to do push-ups with your rifle on top of your hands, right? And every time you'd go down, you'd have to say something like, um, uh, "How did it go?" Oh. Oh, I know what it was. If you called your rifle your gun, then you'd get punished for it. So you'd have to say, you know, this is my rifle and this is my gun, and this is for shooting and this is for fun, pointing <laughs> at your crotch. <laughs> oh, wow. So I remember one day I was, uh, <coughs> excuse me, allergies. Um, oh, there was an inspection where everything has to be, like, perfect. 
You know, your brass is shining, your shoes, your bed is perfect. And your little, um, your locker, I forgot what it's called, at the foot of your bed has all your stuff in it. Your socks have to be folded a certain way and everything has to be perfect, right? So, yeah, my stuff was perfect. So it came time for inspection and I discovered a pair of dirty socks that I forgot to, I forgot to wash, you know? So well, what do I do with these socks? So I put it in the sleeve of a shirt and the sleeve was on the inside of the locker, right? Something, oh, they won't find this. So you right? flatten it out and you like slide it in the sleeve? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember if I flattened it out or if it was you rolled up, it. I don't okay. know. But they found it. <laughs> this dirty pair of socks. So the DI walks up to me. Johnson? Yes, sir. What's this? Uh, dirty socks, sir. <laughs> Get your ass down there and give me the dying cockroach followed by 50 push-ups. Now, the dying cockroach is where you, you're lying on your back, hands stretched out, arms stretched out, but you have to keep your arms and your feet two inches off the ground okay until they say you know and if you drop it then you have to start off <laughs> you know we're, we're thinking this is punishment but actually it's just physical training yeah in case a way. you yeah so you can and public humiliation no it, it's for your own good in case you get sent to the jungles you know and you can survive and you know, go home and see mama again, mm. you know? Yeah, but, because you're building your mental toughness as well. Yeah, so. yeah. But we thought it was punishment. We're just young and stupid, you know? So anyway, yeah. Yeah, I was I was in the U.S. military. Yeah. That's, I did not know that. I yeah. Don't, I don't think a lot of people think. No, I mean, no. it's not something you walk around. No, it's not something you think about, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like uh, I was talking to Jody in here one day. It came up and she says, you've been around that long? <laughs> yeah, mommy, I, I know a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my life has been very, very, very good. That's good. I think we're going to wrap it up soon because we're getting, you know, an hour and 20 in. But I did want to finish with your Tango Intoxication book because you've been working on this project for how long? 14 years. Did you know 14 years ago you were gonna write a book or were you just in the beginning just gonna write some stories? How did this project get going? Um, I was at a milonga with uh, Carlos Quiroga. Carlos Quiroga was the first tango DJ I ever danced to. So Carlos Quiroga had a magazine called Report Tango Magazine. Mm -hmm, yeah. And one day, one night at the Milonga, I said, Carlos, you know, every time I read your magazine, there are always so many mistakes in, in the magazine, and, and the English is messed up. And he, <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, do you want to edit it? I said, <laughs> yeah, I would love to. So he made me the proofreader of the magazine, and then later I started writing articles for the magazine. So this book 
Tango intoxication is uh, uh, started with about mm, 12 or 14 articles that I wrote for Report Tango magazine, hmm. which is no longer being produced. It's now online, online as you know. Yeah, yeah. But I remember once you came to uh, Tango Cafe and you had a box full of... Yeah, oh, Talk gave me, I think I'm missing four out of all of them. And uh, yeah. yeah, Talk collected every single one and then gave it to me. I have two copies, two copies of every one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have uh, the... It was originally on like eight and a half by 11 piece of paper stapled together huh. before it became a magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah. I so. also got from Lucille some... Um, some other tango, oh, I forget the name, it was a magazine that came out in like 2000 or 99. Uh, Isabella Sebastian and a couple people were producing this. I have, anyway, there's photos. It's, it's similar to Ripper Tango, but it's full size. Mm -hmm. And there's like a full page of photos uh, going back to like 98, 97. Mm. It's pretty cool. She gave me a few. Uh, she's got a lot of stuff, Lucille, yeah. like yeah. a lot of stuff, photos and a lot of memories. Yeah. So this thing, this book started uh, with those articles from Report Tango magazine. And um, when I went out dancing, uh, thoughts would come in and uh, I would I always have a pen and a piece of paper in my pocket at all times. And so I just jot down notes and when I went home, I just start writing. So, I didn't start writing and then 14 years later after writing every day come up with this book. No, mm -hmm. I, there was, you know, long periods when I didn't do anything. Right, right. But it's you know, 46 chapters and 588 pages and um, a lot of it is just to help students, mm -hmm. you know? And just get a feel for... Uh, I don't know what I like about it is that it takes the, I don't, and I don't want this to sound bad, but it takes the mystique out of, you know, how you said, you know, you heard the music and you saw this like black and white movies. Movie. Yeah. Uh, this book really gets to the, the heart of like, what are we actually doing? Who are the actual people? What are some of the stories that are going? It's not all like mystified, like, ooh, yeah. Know, only passion. you can do this if, yeah. It's like, it's more, it puts it on like a human level, which I like. Good. And some funny stories in there as well. That was the idea, yeah. to make it real. Yeah. And again, of the 35 Tango books I have in my library at home, there's no book like this. No, no, for sure. Because I didn't want to romanticize and talk about the passion of Tango. No, man. It's like the real stuff, you know? Like, brush your teeth with milonga gum, uh, you know, <laughs> go to the gym. These are some exercises you can do. Uh, Let's hold up for one second. I'm going to pause because this...
yeah, it's a uh, very real look into uh, what's going on here. Yeah, and one of my favorite chapters is chapter 25, which is called Top Three Secret Shortcuts to Better Tango Dancing. Then you turn the page. And you have two blank pages. It's like, what the heck? And you turn the page. And it says, there are no shortcuts to better tango dancing. End of chapter, end of discussion, take lessons, and then practice. <laughs> and ain't that the truth. So, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of this. Are you working uh, on any other books? I am, as a matter of fact. I am working on something. Yeah? Yeah, it is, or will be, a book of quotes and poems and um, in relation to yeah. what? what tango. Okay. Tango. <laughs> and it's it's just oh I'll give you the title. The working title mm -hmm. is Love Above the Belt. Mm, that's cool. Inside the mind of a tango dancer. Now, Love Above the Belt, it's not, it's not a mass appeal title because tango is not mass appeal. But after you spend some time with this dance, well, for me anyway, I can really feel the love in my chest, mm. you know? And uh, those who don't do the dance come to a milonga, the room is dark, the music is soft, and people are in an extreme close embrace. And I'm sure a lot of those people are thinking, oh, well, they just had sex. <laughs> or, oh, those two are going to get it on tonight. It's like, <laughs> I don't even know her. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but the, the, the project I'm working on now, uh, if I can, I'd like to read some of it for you, if I may. Sure, yeah. yeah. We could okay. uh, do that, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. It's going to take a minute for this to load. And how long have we been working on this project? About three years. Okay. And I discovered that I can write on the subway. It's really easy for me to block things out and zero in, hmm. you know? Also, there's a new bar in my neighborhood. In my life, I never hung out in a bar, never, until mm -hmm. they built this place in my neighborhood. And one of the reasons is because the people, the people who work there are just great, you know? So I go there sometimes, get a beer, sit down, you know, all this noise and all this commotion and mm -hmm. music and stuff, but I'm able to really concentrate. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll give you a couple of uh, these very short little quotes that I'm working on. Um, one is, uh, tango is a language without vowels or consonants. 
to avoid developing a diminished musical mentality, listen habitually. Dance with them and the rhythm that's within them. <laughs> that's cool. I like that. <laughs> the embrace is as close as you can get without being inside. <laughs> that's true. Um, oh, here's one. Now, this is not the quote. I'm going to set this up. Mm -hmm. The world says it takes two to tango, right? Okay. Okay, well, my take on it is, here's the quote, to tango, it takes not two, but four, you, me, the music, and the floor. Hmm. I'll give you one more. Okay. Music and the use of it is the common universal altar at which all dancers worship. Hmm, that's a good one. I could see, like, little illustrations with these. Yeah. You know the artist De La Vega used to have the shop in the village? Yeah. And write quotes around the city and yeah. like sign them and stuff. Yeah. You can see like little illustrations, these kind of things. Well, um, it's, it's going to be a series of photographs as well. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. And um, me and uh, Omar Hechtenkoff oh, yeah. are yeah. talking. Omar is a, a very talented. Digital. Yeah, he, well, he's an artist, he's yeah. a graphic artist, he's a photographer, he's an animator. Oh, yeah, I saw that video he made for you. That was yeah, yeah. Um, he used to work for Hanna-Barbera and Disney, and hmm. so he's the real deal. But uh, we haven't gotten together on the photographs yet, but I, I've written like over 500 quotes so Old far. Crap. Oh. Yeah, so I'm serious about it. Yeah, <laughs> well, we look forward to it. So. so, thank you. This has been my official longest interview. Oh, chat. no, I'm sorry. It's okay. No, I'll really? cut out about half of it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I appreciate it, Bat. Thanks for your time. And you're always optimistic and joy you bring to the events that you show up to. Thank you. It's great to have your energy there. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. And, again, Adam doesn't like it when I do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Thank you for all you do for the New York tango community. Well, you're, you as well. Thank you for your organizing, your, you know, Mala Leche, Tango Cafe. I'm going to, I might be doing some emceeing at the Philadelphia Festival. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. put you down and rag you out and throw you under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be there? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. Good. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Bat. Thank you. See you soon. Oh, now I see. I, now I see that shirt that you have on. I, I didn't I even see it. I didn't even see it. <laughs> so tell everyone what well, that. Well, I'm wearing a, a Bat Johnson. Uh, what is it? Wanted sign we made as a joke, going back a year or two now, with an old photo when Bat still was uh, a little more present on the scalp. <laughs> and he had some more hair there. When I had hair. And uh, man, I was really young there. Look at that guy. Yeah. So he's I'll, almost uh, handsome. I'll put a photo of this in the show notes so people have a reference of what we're talking about. But I found this today. I mean, I always knew I still had it, but <laughs> I thought I would wear it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Bat. Thank you. So there was Bat Johnson for you, everybody. I hope someday to be like Bat Johnson, to see the brighter things, to see the positive things 
to see the to be optimistic more often I tend to consider myself uh, a pretty optimistic kind of person in general but then there's people like bat who uh, can show you all the things in life that we tend not to appreciate and who knows maybe he's just like goes home and turns it off and turns into a grump when he gets back to his apartment but I have a feeling that's not probably the case so once again I hope you enjoyed the show if I can get uh, if I can squeeze an interview in this week before I leave for Philly then we will have a show next Tuesday otherwise we'll have a little break and uh, you can all catch up on the previous episodes until then I hope you have a great week and enjoy the time you have here alright take care